Howdy, welcome to the arena. I'm your host, Greg Sindelar. Today we are honored to be joined by my special guest, former colleague and current congressman for District 21 here in Texas, the one, the only, Chip Roy. Chip, thanks for joining us today. Greg, great to be here. It's always great to be here at TPPF. And uh, every time I come here, I see a new uh, great addition, uh, you know, in terms, in terms of your all's uh, moving forward and upgrading, but it's great to be here. Yeah, we're like the universe. We're ever expanding. Yeah, exactly. So we're trying to provide help to y'all up in DC yep, and things like that. Totally. Well, so the, the reason, the, the purpose of this podcast is for people to get a better understanding of kind of your background and what drives and motivates you as well as we'll talk uh, more topically about what's going on, but maybe the place to start um, is, is tell people a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and, and, and more importantly, you know, you've had a really interesting background. You've worked for Attorney General, for Senator Cruz, Senator Cornyn, the Governor Perry, you know, kind of what got you into public life? What, why did you decide to um, get in the arena per se? Well, it's funny, you know, look, I mean, going way back, I grew up at the sort of, you know, uh, footsteps of my grandmother, who was the first woman elected county clerk in Nolan County, Texas, back in 19, I think, I don't know, 51, 23, somewhere in there. Um, and she was a single mom because my grandfather had passed away. He'd been the chief of police of Sweetwater, Texas. And oh, yeah. so she, um, you know, she didn't go look for any handouts. She didn't do anything. She just, you know, ran and, you know, like I said, first woman elected and did her thing. And then, you know, so I kind of grew up, then she married a fellow county clerk and, and I kind of grew up watching Again, these are local politics, but you, you pay attention. And then, you know, I was blessed to be a displaced Texan growing up in Virginia, right? So I was grew up a Cowboys fan in Virginia, just outside of DC. And there's uh, a lot of Cowboys fans up there. There though. are, there are. But remember, this was the hated, this was the 80s, 90s. I mean, this was like Cowboys, Reds, kids. <laughs> yeah. It was the deal. And um, so, but look, I, I grew up steeped in American history up there. I mean, I you know grew up a few miles from Harper's Ferry where the John Brown raid occurred. You know, my AP history class, we reenacted Pickett's Charge and went up to Gettysburg and did all that. And I went to the University of Virginia, founded by Jefferson, lived in a room built by Jefferson. My first job was in Richmond, a few blocks from where Patrick Henry gave his famous, you know, give yeah. me liberty or give me death speech in uh, St. John's Church. So I was just kind of immersed in our American, you know, founding and history. And I was just drawn to public policy. Um, you know, I grew up as a kid of the 80s, Reagan being the president. So I went to school and thought I was going to be all private sector and, and that this would just be a, a hobby. <laughs> and sure enough, my first job out of school was in banking. And I did that you know, for a number of years. And I was in the private sector fully until I went to law school. And again, I thought I was going to go back to the private sector, but the Lord has a sense of humor. And, <laughs> you know, I hooked up with uh, President Bush's campaign here in Austin in 2000, John Cornyn's campaign for Senate. And went up and worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I won't go through my whole career, but basically I kind of bounced in and out of public service and private sector um, with stops along the way with, as I said, on the Senate Judiciary Committee during Supreme Court confirmations. And, you know, Ted Cruz's chief of staff as a federal prosecutor for a couple of years, uh, ran the attorney general's office for Ken Paxton for, you know, a year and change. And uh, so just done a number of things in that space. And then um, this space, this space opened up um, when Lamar Smith re retired and I jumped in and except the Lord has a sense of humor. I'm now in Congress. So we were working together uh, at the time that you decided yep. to to jump in. Yep. And uh, well, actually, even going back a little bit further, I remember when you first came and joined TPPF. Yeah, I'd known you a little bit here and there uh, from certain things. But as I talked to people about wh who is Chip Roy, was he like, people were like, you will always know exactly what he thinks. And I think that is true. And I think the American people and your constituents right. have found that, you know, w you know, through your uh, academic background and, and your and your upbringing and, and things like that. How, how have you, what what kind of developed your your principles uh, that you stand so strongly on? Because I think you live and breathe those probably more than most public servants do. Well, I mean, two two things. One, why is that true? It's because I just think this country is just dying for people just to be honest about what they believe, mm -hmm. and then let the cards fall where they may. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think people, I've just noticed and people say, well, gosh, I really disagree with you on that, but you're being honest about it and doing what you think is right. Gosh, if we just all did that instead of all playing games, you know how many of my colleagues I see go in and go, oh yeah, don't worry, we're with you on the farm bill. And then I'll go into a private meeting and I go, God, I hate SNAP and I'm not sure what we're going to do. And, you know, I hate the farm bill. And say, I have the farm bureau come in and I go, look, I love you guys. I grew up, my parents had a little cotton farm. I know how that works. My granddad dealing with all the insurance and all. I get it. Uh, but SNAP is terrible, and it's it's an expansive program that's causing all sorts of issues, and the food stamps, and, and it needs to be reformed. So I'm not sure if I'm with it, right? I mean, like, we'll see what happens with the bill, but it needs to be reformed. Mm -hmm. I've campaigned on that. I've told them that from the beginning. I think people are hungry for that. And, look, I grew up, as I said, as a kid of the 80s. 
watching Ronald Reagan. Um, and and that formed my overall philosophy on top of the history I just talked about. I was kind of a Jeffersonian, limited government guy um, from a historical perspective. But, but Reagan really came in and showed what you can do, that you can inspire the country to believe in our country, to love their country, to want to um, you know be proud of their country, but also believe that government's not the solution yeah. and that, that our own ability to achieve personal responsibility and civil society helping each other out, not looking to a faraway bureaucrat to solve your problems, that was formative for me. So, you know, look, I just think you should call it like you see it and then uh, let the people decide. So I think you're, you're right that people absolutely kind of crave that leadership and people just actually speaking the truth. You know, it feel like, feels like we live in a post-truth world, right? right. We, we don't, you know, we were talking right before this started about your, a speech you gave where <laughs> you had to point out that Lee Thomas is, is a dude right. and that's upsetting to people, but it's clearly the truth, right? And so that's, that's difficult, but, um, w you know, understanding where we are in our current uh, divide in our country, how do you think we get back to, um, uh, uh, on, on, especially as conservatives, really like taking taking uh, control of the, the, the culture and winning back the culture? Because I think people are with us, but they yeah. need people to be brave about that. I think to, to cut to the chase, we have to lay it all on the line. You just gotta put it all out there and just say, here's what we believe, here's where we wanna go. You know, take right now, for example, the debt ceiling fight. Everybody always thinks that's all about dollars and cents. It's like, oh, $32 trillion of debt, 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 money, money. It's not really an accounting issue. It's more of a cultural issue. Mm -hmm. What are we funding? Yeah. We're literally printing money, borrowing money, and taxing to take dollars and go do something with it. Some of that stuff is legitimate and constitutional and appropriate. Some of it is not the best use of spending, but not you know particularly controversial. And some of it is absolutely asinine, right? Where you're just <laughs> dumping dollars to go fund the very bureaucrats you campaign against, the very bureaucrats that are undermining your freedom, the very bureaucrats that are trying to say what's up is down and what's down is up and what's you know white is black, black is white. Everything's just backwards, right? Mm -hmm. And so. This is what we're trying to pick in the fight, in the debt ceiling fight, is to say, look, let's constrain that federal bureaucracy. Let's put it back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, some people used to complain in the EPA that, oh, they're traumatized because the Trump administration was going after them. <laughs> I'm like, man, the more traumatized bureaucrats we have, the stronger America is, right? Yeah, because right. <laughs> I want to free up the American people to, to go live the dream. And the bottom line is, I actually believe that most Americans right now feel, particularly middle class, maybe kind of lower upper class, you know, uh, the, the lower class trying to get to the middle class, that block of Americans feel like increasingly the American dream's out of reach. Mm -hmm. They just do. They look at it and go, I've got staffers who are in their mid-20s, worked hard their whole life. They're like, how am I going to buy a house? Yeah. How can I afford it? It costs the housing going up, interest rates going up. How do I save money to do that? My health care prices are going up. You know, they, they can't actually see the path forward. Whereas for many, many years, decades, centuries in America, you thought if you worked hard, you did the right thing, and you you you, you did everything you knew that, that you should do for you and your family, that you'd do well, that you would be able to achieve the American dream. And that was largely true. So that's what I actually, we want to reclaim that. We got to take this country back and restore it to the middle-class, hardworking American, small business owners, Main Street, if you will, instead of the corporate cronyism class and the handful of people inside the Beltway who are all getting enriched while the rest of us are kind of on the outside looking in. Yeah, it seems uh, obscene to the rest of us, right, mm -hmm. that the D.C. metro area is literally the richest part of America, the most And that's not accidental, yeah. right? That, that's a consequence of expanding the federal state and then all of the, this is the important part, all of the corporate cronyism built up around it. Yeah. That's the truth. That's where that money lies. Yes, it's from federal bureaucrats also getting overpaid, but really it's the defense industrial complex. It's the massive healthcare entities. It's Amazon now dropping a headquarters right there looking right next to the Pentagon, like yeah. literally looking yeah, at the Pentagon. Next door, yeah. You know, that stuff, they're doing it for a reason. They know where their bread is buttered, yeah. right? You think, you think Aetna and Blue Cross and all those guys are going, bring back the free markets. No, no, no. <laughs> they're literally sucking off the tea to government saying, yes, give me your government contracts to manage healthcare. In what world is that America, right? Yeah. Those are the things we've got to break the back of. Yeah, well, there's an, it's increasing that mo there's too many industries that are no longer markets. Right. Yeah, and and healthcare, as you, you mentioned, is a, a big one of those. Well, um, you mentioned the debt ceiling. You want to give us kind of an update on currently where those negotiations are, what you think is going to happen. Uh, you've been obviously very involved in some of that. Yeah, well, just, just so we can pin it, it's, it's so fluid. 
what is today? We're talking. It's Friday, uh, you know, May nineteenth at uh, you know ten till two. We'll see how Central. fast we get this out. Right. Yeah, exactly. You can edit that out if you want to. But but my point is, at this moment, uh, where we are is um, House Republicans leadership, McCarthy's office, and a few folks have been sitting down with the White House, uh, trying to negotiate to get somewhere. Um, like my personal view is. We've already done our, our end of the bargain, right? Yeah. We passed a bill. It's a good bill. It raises the debt ceiling a trillion and a half dollars, which none of us really wanted to do. We did it anyway in order to get fiscal reforms that we think will get us on a better, albeit not perfect, path. Save five trillion over ten years, a trillion in year one. Knock out the student loans, which unfairly picks winners and losers. Leaves the plumber on the outside looking in who never took out a loan while someone else gets their loan paid off. Yeah. You know, undo this the uh, absurd. Uh, infl Inflation Reduction Act tax credits, which are going essentially to billion-dollar corporations uh, to go pump out wind and solar, which needs gas to back it up, but you're enriching them with subsidies and undermining our grid and our markets. You know, I could just go down the list of the things, but they were all critically important, but importantly, restraining government with $131 billion of cuts off of 24-level spending, I'm sorry, 23-level spending to get it back to 2022. So we did all of that. We passed a bill and it's sitting there. There it is, Mr. President go, right? Where have you been? Because for 104 days, he's, he refused to sit down and talk to us. Now they're panicking because they realize uh, June 1st is coming right around the corner. <laughs> it's close. Uh, that's in about, what, 12 days, 11 yeah. days, and they don't have it. And the fact is, they kept saying, we want a clean debt ceiling increase. And we're pretty united. We had 43 Republican senators, really two more that didn't sign the letter. So 45 who said, we're not going to support cloture on something that's not, you know, a a substantial change in terms of our fiscal direction. So all of that is to say, as of right now, the discussions, the debates, the negotiations, as of about an hour and a half ago, blew up. Uh, my Democratic colleagues refused to um, talk even about work requirements, the same work requirements that Joe Biden signed in the 90s yeah. and that Bill Clinton signed into law. Um, and so, look, my view is we've done our job. Joe Biden flew to Japan. The Senate just recessed. The Democrat Senate just recessed. If they think it's a big issue, why aren't they in Washington right now? Yeah. Rolling their sleeves up and doing their job. It's because it's all politics. That's mm -hmm. why. So we're going to keep fighting. But if anybody defaults, it'll be Joe Biden, not us. Yeah. And uh, the the problem with that is, right, ultimately be the American people that are that are harmed by his... Yeah. The truth is, though, we won't default, right? Yeah. Because there's plenty, there's plenty of dollars to pay the interest. I'm, all I'm saying is if they default, he'll choose to do it for some political purposes. I don't think he'll do that. They can pay Social Security. I think they'll pay Social Security, but they'll start playing games with veterans or they'll shut some parks down or they'll do whatever they're going to do to try to extract pain because we're daring to say we need to actually change the way the system works. And um, But, you know, hopefully the American people will see through those politics. I'm encouraging my colleagues, don't blink. We actually have a job to do. When the guys were sitting in a foxhole in Bastogne freezing to death, they didn't do so, so we'd be mortgaging, mortgaging our future for crass political reasons, which is what we're doing now. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, and, and obviously you've been through some of these fights before. You were with Senator Cruz during mm -hmm. government shutdowns and things like that. What, do, what have those previous battles taught you about the one you're currently in? Well, first of all, the importance of messaging to the American people. Um, you know, I put out a tweet thread today while I was flying back from D.C. to Austin, kind of laying out what I believe. In this Glad the Wi-Fi worked. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The dead ceiling uh, debate, why I was characterizing it as purposeful legislation, not political. And I went through each line item, and I went through some of them with you a minute ago, saying, here's why this is important. Here's why this matters. Here, here's why the RAINS Act matters, to pull back the regulatory mm -hmm. state. And I went down the line item and, and said, look, these are all the reasons this is good legislation. You guys want to debate on the merits, fine. But all of this is designed to make sure our economy is stronger, or we're, we're having a stronger you know, uh, working and middle class, uh, that we're pulling back on the, the deficit spending that's driving up inflation all common sense stuff. Look, we polled, do you think that the federal bureaucracy should be taken back to pre-COVID level? 76 yes, 16 no. Like, look, we're, we're with the American people on this stuff. So look, I think if we keep marching through it, and to your question, you gotta stay the course, you can't blink, but you gotta message to the American people. You can't just assume they know why you're doing it. You gotta go on overdrive so that they understand why you're playing brinksmanship because the other side is going to say you're you know you're gambling with the economy or u.s bonds the fact is it's the, in my case it's the, in this case the president and the my democratic colleagues who are gambling with it and we just have to take that message to the people yeah well and conservatives i think traditionally have been 
terrible on on messaging. I think totally. you'd agree with me on that. Many issues from yep. border security to uh, energy to to economic issues. We get so bogged down in the minutia and the facts that we kind of forget the broader picture. Right. Have you have you seen uh, changes in that since you've uh, been in Congress? Or what are some of the things that that maybe you've been doing to try to improve messaging on on the the right? Well, this is actually a critically important point, messaging, and that we've not been traditionally that great at it. I think we've gotten, A, some better messengers, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that reflects the entirety of the conference. Like, I'm never one that cares much about, oh, you need this diverse thing or whatever, but when you've got a broad cross-spectrum that you can get out there, you've got, you know, uh, some of my colleagues who are, you know, front and center in messaging. Byron Donald's a good example. Yeah. My good friend I, I nominated for speaker in January. <laughs> uh, Byron's exceptional on the messaging front, right? Um, we've just got to do it, do it more often and not be afraid of it. Don't be afraid to go on networks that aren't always your, your uh, you know, first political choice. Um, but go it, do it often, and when you think you've done enough, do more of it. You know, do local radio. I try to do as much local radio as possible mm-hmm. because that's where you really get through to the, you know, crack through to the grassroots. Uh, hit social media, hit all the channels, uh, and you have to be relentless. And I think we're getting better at it. Yeah. But it's just taking some work to pry people on it. We do more on the floor. Use the the floor, the house floor. Use it to our advantage, and try to use moments to your advantage. When I we had somebody in front of the House Judiciary Committee's uh, subcommittee on the Constitution, uh, and she's a lawyer for the uh, you know National Abortion Federation, and you know I just went after her about an old quote that she had. Um, and I won't get into it here, but it was you know pretty grotesque procedure, and I called her out on it and. You know, those things catch people's attention, and then you're you're making the case and making the message. And a lot of my colleagues historically have always wanted to go in, and they just do like charts and X's and O's and do it. <laughs> Nobody cares about that stuff, right? They they want to know the truth, so expose the truth. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the things that has impressed me about you as a, a, a congressman is is you're willing to do that. You're willing to stand up the fire. I've seen you. I've been to your town halls <laughs> before. Uh, there was a time actually this building was in yeah. your, your district, um, and uh, you, you haven't been afraid to do that. And it's 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 I think it's encouraging to those of us who are on the outside to see people fight on the inside, right? I think that's right. I mean, the one thing that I think that is the overriding principle that affects your messaging the best is if you don't care um, at the end of the day whether your life is going to be made by virtue of you holding on to your election certificate, mm-hmm. right? If you're willing to say, okay, worst case scenario, I lose an election in a primary or general. Worst case scenario, I've got to go home to Texas and be with my wife and kids and not have to fly to D.C. every week. If you're willing to do that and say, I'm not going to play politics and all this just because I'm holding on with a death grip to a, an election certificate, you're freed up to go speak the truth and, and, and be honest with the American people. And at the end of the day, I think that actually makes you more popular. It makes you more um, you know, interesting to the people you represent. I have a lot of people who just violently disagree with me on different issues, right? Particularly in, in and around Austin. <laughs> and but I have a lot of them who come to me and say, "Man, I really disagree with you on X, Y, or Z." But you know, I really appreciated one, you know, or two or three. Um, and I think it's because if you're just willing to go be honest about what you think, people in the end of the day they're gonna they're gonna treat with you respect even if they strongly disagree with you. I think that's critically important. Yeah. And so speaking of, of fighting, obviously there's a lot of news this week as as the Durham report came out on hmm. on the FBI. Yeah. You know, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that because you know, we're, t- we're talking a little bit ago about draining the swamp and putting the fear back into bureaucrats. Well, I think if we can put the fear back into the DOJ and the FBI and some yeah. of those things, that would benefit greatly the American people. But I'm curious, what do you think, of, if anything, will come of, of that report? Well, you know, we definitely need to have consequences at the end of the day on this stuff. Um, people always get mad at us. You know, I get constituents or people around the country who goes, you guys don't do anything. What are you doing? It's like, well, look, first of all, you know, getting to the place of impeachment or getting somebody actually prosecuted is a lot harder than you think. Mm-hmm. And we don't own the DOJ right now, right? Now, could we have done more when we had the first two years of Trump and we had the Congress? Yes. I wasn't there. <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> But where we are right now is we do need to have consequences. Putting aside the Durham report for a minute, which you know exposed the extraordinary political nature of what the uh, entire uh, you know Russian hoax you know was about, mm-hmm. um, and we can go through the Durham report and they he lays it out. And you know even you know I think I saw Jake Tapper, whom I, I respect, he's a friend. Jake was pointing out saying. Uh, yeah, this was not a good day for the FBI. Yeah. Well, yesterday wasn't a good day for the yeah. FBI. I don't know how many people saw the whistleblowers who were testifying uh, in the weaponization committee, which we created as a product of our negotiations with uh, 
uh, now Speaker McCarthy, because we knew we wanted to have something focused entirely on the weaponization of the federal government against the American people. And the FBI is at the center of that. The entire Department of Justice is at the center of that, with ATF and with, uh, you know, the various, you know, uh, powers that be that are making decisions there, all the way up to Merrick Garland. Uh, we saw yesterday some of the stuff out of the whistleblowers, uh, but we saw what happened to Scott Smith, right? The the dad from Leesburg, Virginia, who was yeah. you know put on a domestic terrorist list. Mm-hmm. You look across all of that stuff, and then the political targeting of a president, which was very clear. And, and look, I I'm pretty objective on this. I'm a big fan of President Trump. Supported his agenda, campaigned for him, uh, defended so much of his stuff. Had to some disagreements. Yeah. Disagreed a little bit on the on the how to handle the electors. Um, and importantly, uh, you know, I've, I've leaned out publicly in favor of Governor DeSantis. He's a good friend. I've known him for yeah. a decade. But President Trump was targeted politically. That's just the fact. You can't really dispute that. The, D- the Durham report makes that clear. And I think I'm watching some of the kind of never Trump or Republicans and some of the Democrats kind of like you can tell they're a little on their heels going, OK, well, that wasn't very good, but move on. Right. Yeah. And we can't let that happen. Same thing with COVID, by the way. We can't allow this tyranny that's entrenched around this bureaucracy not to be exposed. And by the way, going back to my debt ceiling point, that's why we want to cut the federal bureaucracy. That's why we want to return the federal bureaucracy to the 2019 pre-COVID levels. It's to constrain them. If they don't have extra dollars to play with, harder for them to come after us. Do oversight, constrain their money, make their sandbox smaller. we got to figure out how to refocus the FBI at a minimum. We should return the FBI to the pre-9-11, you know, get them out of the, you know, domestic terrorism business, because that's what they're using as an excuse to go after the American people, rather than just focusing on taking down organized crime across state lines, which is, while they weren't perfect in 1999 or, you know, before before uh, 9-11, they were um, at least not engaged where they are today. Yeah, well, and you look at the need for that, right? Because one thing that you and I have talked a lot about is border security, human trafficking, and all these things. You know, these cartels, obviously, we, we, we can dive into a little bit about what's happening yeah. in Mexico, but they are the, the way that they have infiltrated communities, not just in Texas, but across this country. That is an acute uh, issue that needs to be uh, dealt with and the FBI could be really helpful on, right? If you look at fentanyl and, right. and the human trafficking. If the FBI is not targeting Scott Smith and spending time on that, if the FBI is not, you know, wrapped around the axle trying to go make a political case against Donald Trump, maybe just maybe they could actually go try to target the people trafficking fentanyl that caused 72,000 Americans to die. Including, by the way, mm-hmm. four ki- I think now we're up to six or seven kids in Hayes County, yep. where I live. Um, this is, it, it is a terrible situation. I met with three fentanyl moms uh, 10 days ago or two weeks ago here in Austin out at El Arroyo, great spot. And, uh, <laughs> but we had, and they're great ladies, you know, and um, you know, they lost their kids to fentanyl. Like, where's the FBI in going after this stuff? Where's the FBI, you know, making sure that we're, you know, DEA, you know, all of our agencies are coordinating and working together in a whole of government approach. And if they need additional resources from Congress or some organizing, organizing structure, come to us. If they need heightened, you know, uh, statutes or sentencing, bring it to them. But what do we do to go stop the fentanyl? Uh, traffic. It's absurd what's happening. China's getting empowered. Cartels are getting empowered. Americans are dying. And it's it's a um, it's infiltrating our whole society in such a way that it's actually breaking us down, like yeah. all of this. And so, yeah, the, the, if, if our federal agencies were actually doing their job, uh, yes, they're uphill climbs, but we would be far, much farther down the line uh, doing the things we're supposed to do uh, from a law enforcement perspective. And again, remember, the police powers, I mean broadly, the police powers isn't just cops, but are at the local and state level, right? That's where most of the stuff's supposed to occur. So to the extent you have federal law enforcement, it is supposed to be to coordinate when you've got, you know, interstate, you know, criminal organizations, right, that uh, that you want to go after. And um, clearly cartels and their fingers and gangs and the, and the distribution of fentanyl. And then don't get me started on human trafficking yeah. and what we need to do to stop that in this country. Why don't we have a moonshot of killing fentanyl and killing human trafficking in this country? Yeah. Right. That would be a great thing for Republicans to say. The next administration, a Republican administration in Congress, we are going to destroy the entire fentanyl and human trafficking network that has infiltrated our country. Let's just go do it. We can do it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the 
things that that people really miss on this and they I think the left gets really focused on oh what we're doing for the migrants and all these things but the way that they're allowing the border crisis to unfold it is is exploiting the migrants especially the women and the children who I would say probably nearly 100% of them are being assaulted and exploited along the way. Um, and that's and many of them are not even making it to this country before they're disappearing. And so, you, you know, I'm curious what you think from the federal level, the state level, local level needs to happen to ensure that we do take that and, and, and get serious about that and stop that. I'm really proud of this Republican Congress for last week passing HR2. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a long time coming. Uh, really two decades in the making for us to finally pass a true border security bill that is not weighed down by amnesty debate. It's not weighed down by debates about the future flow of immigration. All issues we need to address, nobody disagrees with that, but focused purely and squarely on securing the border of the United States. And securing the border does not just mean money, fencing, cameras, and that kind of stuff. That's all part of it. But it actually means having policies in place that are enforced by the executive branch that make it very clear that there are these ways to come to this country and these ways only, and we're going to enforce those laws. That's what's been breaking down. The numbers speak for themselves, right? We've had 1.7 million gotaways, okay? 1.7 million gotaways, 2 million plus released in the United States, 5 million encounters. We are having right now, President Biden goes, oh, it's much better than everybody expected after Title 42 has expired. We're still at 4,000 a day which is an extraordinary number, historically speaking. And by the way, the cartels are just kind of reworking how they're aligning how the traffic's going to work in a post-Title 42 universe. So, look, where I think we need to go is we need to do pretty much what the Texas border plan laid out that we put together last year. Uh, And every member, save one, of the entire Texas delegation signed on to this Texas border plan. That served as the nucleus of what we ended up passing in our legislation. And that's one piece of it, like pass these uh, reforms. But we also have to use the power of the purse to hold the president accountable. We have to say, look, we're not going to give you money to fund the government if you're not going to use it to actually do what you're supposed to do under the law and secure the border of the United States. And then the third thing that I think has to be a part of it, uh, frankly, it's states, you know, stepping up and pressuring and doing what they can do. And obviously, Texas has been trying to step into the breach. Uh, I think, you know, Governor Abbott should be applauded for doing what is, you know, they've done with DPS and, and, you know, Steve McGraw's a friend and, you know, these guys are all, you know, doing a lot of the Lord's work. They're sitting down on the Rio Grande right now with razor wire and guns and our DPS guys, who, by the way, shouldn't have to be there. Yeah. They should be able to be here making up for Austin City Council, different story, and, you know, making sure our, our streets are safe and going after fentanyl that gets all the way to our communities. Border Patrol is supposed to stop it at the border. And by the way, it's not the Border Patrol agents, line agents' fault. It's Alejandro Mayorkas and Joe Biden's fault. But DPS is doing a lot. But I will say, and it's always a fine line here, you know, I want to applaud the great stuff when our Texas leaders are doing it. They're friends of mine. But I also have a duty to to call balls and strikes. we got to lean into it even further, right? I mean, this is our state. It is our border. I do believe the Constitution gives us power to repel and deal with an invasion. And I think it's something that that needs to continue to be a part of it. I I hated to see HB 20 go down. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see more aggressive action. Uh, And and look, I I say this looking in the mirror. My job in D.C. is to try to force Mayorkas and Biden to get the job done and to uphold our end of the bargain. But Texas has to give us more wind in our sails by taking action as well. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, some of this... You're trying to figure out legally what you can yep. and can't do as a state, and, and I understand that. Yep. But then also, some of it, you're just trying to prod the feds into yep. doing something, and 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 which is a difficult position to be in. But it's something that our communities need, unfortunately. And the, the last thing I'll say, because you brought it up, and I didn't mean to diverge from it, because it's actually the centerpiece of my messaging: Americans are dying and getting hurt. Migrants are dying and getting hurt. A little girl, as we speak, is getting abused because the most powerful nation in the history of the universe refuses to do our job to secure the border, and we're allowing this human trafficking chain to be promoted by cartels, but then facilitated by NGOs and our own government, and people are getting abused and dying. 856 migrants last year found along the border in South Texas, along the Rio Grande and in Arizona. Um, you know, 53 who died in a tractor trailer in San Antonio mm-hmm. uh, last year in the Texas heat. Um, the thousands that are, you know, in stash houses as we speak and getting, you know, moved around the country for 
slave trade, you know, uh, uh, human trafficking, both for labor and sex trafficking. Totally unconscionable. Uh, and people, they kind of scoff it off. It's like, well, have you ever, you know, seen the footage of gone into these stash houses and you saw, mm -hmm. like a massive humanity or heard 90 the stories? 90 people in like yeah. a it's, 800 square foot You just place, can't yeah. believe it's happening in our own country. It's like, okay. let's go stop that. And that's, I, I do think a kind of moonshot type effort uh, by a future administration. But I mean, again, to do what we should be doing, but it's hard. Like fentanyl's tough. Yeah. You know, it is a very deadly drug. It's being manufactured. The precursor ingredients are coming from China. They're also coming from the cartels themselves. Our kids can get them on these dastardly devices. I think the, you know, the, this all manners of sin. I mean, if, if I could abolish this, I would. I, I joke around on the campaign <laughs> I'm trail. With you, bro. Uh, seriously, I want to go back to if, if I, I joke around that I would sooner give a carton of cigarettes and a case of beer to our kids every week if I could get rid of these. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a little tongue in cheek, but a little not. Yeah. Because I'm telling you, the extent to which criminals can go after them, the extent to which mental health, suicide, all that, different topic, but it is related. Fentanyl is getting to our kids. The way that you know the, our society is breaking down our kids. You know some of this mental health stuff that you're seeing unfold in, in the shootings. I mean, I'm telling you, the last 14, 15 years, putting one of these in every kid's hands, not good. No, I think you're absolutely right. Because uh, if you look at you know some of these mass shooters, the Uvalde shooter, other folks like that, they're getting spun up yep. online, and 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 they're it's feeding into some of their worst. Uh, instincts, and then we see uh, the studies from their own social media companies about what this is doing, especially to young girls. Yep. And it makes you wonder, like, wh wh why are we allowing this to happen? And I have many arguments with my libertarian friends about yep. social media uh, um, access for for kids and some of the things we're I, doing. I ban it in a heartbeat. I'll look squarely at my libertarian friends. <laughs> Man, you, you you go live in your little libertarian utopia. I'm telling you, I would stop that in a heartbeat for our kids, and I, they'd be far better. I'd take I would, no devices. I'm telling you, we I, I went to a event about a month ago, and it was at a place where you were not allowed to have a phone or or a mm -hmm. um, or a uh, camera. And I mean, I'll just tell you, it was the Masters. It was a friend, a friend of mine who got, had tickets, and, and I'd never been. I'm 50 years old. I love golf. I've been one been. Isn't it amazing to go it's a whole day without a phone? It, well, that's the thing. And so we're <laughs> sitting there, and, but here's the important part of the story. Charlie, my son, who's 13, uh, doesn't have devices, right? He's got like a dumb phone that we yeah. can text and see where he is. Um, and so uh, we're there, and we're, we're sitting in the bleachers behind the 12th tee, 11th green, and there's a family from Indiana and a family from Illinois, and there's a family from Texas back over here, and we're all talking. Mm -hmm. And um, by the end of the day, like, we knew them. We got, got a whole yeah. story, and their kids, and Charlie was talking to him. At one point, Charlie goes, literally, no, no one was taking selfies. Nobody was tweeting. Nobody was sitting there buried down like this. Yeah. You know, everybody was talking. He was like, this is awesome. I said, I know. That was what my childhood was like yeah. entirely. Yeah. Right? We had somebody who we had brought with us. who was one of my colleagues I went with, Ralph Norman from South Carolina. Oh, yeah. And uh, Ralph, uh, there was some friend of his that he, he had a couple more tickets he gave to them. And uh, guess we lost him. And it was like it was 1992 again. It was like I was in college. You know what you do when you lose somebody? You don't do anything. Yeah. You go find them later. Yeah. It's not like you text them you or call. You have a rendezvous point. You're like, right. ah, if we lose no, so each we other, we'll the meet fail safe was back at the car at eight o'clock. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> we didn't see him all day. He was off wandering around, you know. And and look, you know, life was fine. It's just, I don't know. I just think it's, it's a better way of living. And, and I, I, it's a little joke, and you can have some fun with it. But we ought to be very serious about this. I mean, mm -hmm. the jokes, libertarians aside, um, I know they go, oh, but all the good things. You just have to be a parent and don't. Look, I'm telling you, we, you watch, you see it. When you see a family and you see these kids sitting in a restaurant and they're all just doing this, they're not talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And you know what's happening. You know they're getting targeted on Snapchat and otherwise with fentanyl. You know that's how they end up going and getting something they think is Adderall and it's laced with fentanyl and then they're dead. You know that it's having you know self-esteem problems for our girls. You know that it's being target used by predators to target kids and lure them into the sex trafficking trade. Yep. Like All of those things are true, 100% true. Now tell me what the positive is for our kids. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I'm just going to be honest with you. What, so they can text their friends? How many kids are bullied? Because yep. you can get on here and, and that's that, you know, faceless attack of like the fat kid or the, you know, ugly kid or the whatever. Did you hear about her? They make up lies because they can do it behind a veneer. Yeah. Right? This is I, this is a much bigger problem than people think. And I, you know, I don't know the exact solution, but but I do think it's critical that we address it as adults. Yeah, well, you know, and we're, we're looking. We have HB 18. Uh, it's working its way through the Senate here now that, that would 
uh, severely restrict it for kids, right? And parents would have That's to great. opt them into it. And it's, uh, I'm with you. Yeah. I would just like flat out ban it. Yeah. Uh, right. But, the more that we can do, the better. Yeah. I mean, I'm in. Yeah. And I tell my libertarian friends, I'm like, hey, when you start a, a, your advocacy on uh, changing tobacco and alcohol laws for kids, right. let, let me know right. so I can. Uh, like I said, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I would flip those before <laughs> I would do the other. I'm yeah. serious. I'm never saying, you know, like when we were kids, it was like somebody had a, you know, you know, six pack in the car and they were, had a lung dart going down the freaking drag, like just <laughs> cruising down, you know, listening to this freaking ACDC. Yeah. I mean, tell me if that's worse than like sitting here on this with all these yeah. like predators. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and, and then we're not even getting into when every time someone's driving, they're all over the place. They're, right. You drive past Correct. them and they're on their phone. Right. Just, yeah. True. Right. Well, so there's there's a lot to, to go. You know, obviously, one of the things that you're very passionate about, we've talked a lot about, and uh, you tweet a lot about, is is school choice. You know, I would love for you to, for our listeners, kind of just lay out why it's such an important issue for you. Because obviously, you're in a district where I would say maybe your your representatives are, some of them are for, some of them are not. But uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting kind of, a lot of rural parts of your district where I think sure. most people feel like in Texas, that's what holds Texas back from getting school choice. Yeah, but the only reason it holds, uh, the only reason that school choice is held back in the rural communities is because it's used as a, you know, uh, a, a beard. It's used yeah. as a way to protect against dealing with the actual issue because we would never, we wouldn't hurt rural education with school choice. That's a complete falsehood. Um, the fact is, and I go talk to most of my rural folks, they don't bring it up with me at all. Um, the fact is, look, I was K through law school public educated. So was my wife. She was the daughter of a single mom, worked her way up through, went to AM, went to UT Law. You know, again, never went to a private school, never really thought about it, had great schools. I went to the University of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson was one of the actual, you know, proponents of the public diffusion of knowledge and the need yeah. for UVA the, is the public ivy. Correct. Right? <laughs> and it's like the and, and, and advocating for increased public education in the K through 12 and, and you know, in, in the in the primary schools. And he was pointing out that you need an educated populace if you're going to be able to have an empowered electorate. And that was the whole debate at the time. I am for all of that. I am for a robust and strong public education system. I believe choice would make public education infinitely stronger. I believe it's bearing out in states that are adopting it. And importantly, it gives parents an out and an option when they've got a break with a school system that is increasingly arrogant about believing that this basically kids belong to the public belong to the education system most of the teachers in my district great folks friends go to the local you know churches or go to look whatever all part of the community there are sisters and, and brothers and whatever and aunts and uncles and you know my aunt is a public school teacher in longview my other aunt was a principal in a public school system all for it my parents only public school educated but the reason that it matters is because you gotta give people the ability to say, I can't allow my kids to be put over here where you have the whole say as how they're getting educated. Yep. Parents are increasingly on the outside looking in. And it's not just performance, although COVID exposed that. You're saying, wait, you're teaching them what? Yeah. But it's, it's importantly, it's like, what are they being taught, right? Are you being taught and force-fed an agenda, a propaganda of this whole woke you know, uh, system and critical race theory and everything else. And I know Texas, oh, we ban it. We pass a law banning CRT. Well, guess what? In Northside ISD in San Antonio, they were dividing kids by hair color and still doing it even after this was banned. So with all due respect to the legislature, don't give me your freaking campaign speech bull crap because that's what we do. We passed a bill. We solved the problem. No, you didn't. I'm talking to the people on the ground. Mm -hmm. I want parents to have the ultimate ability to say, nope. I'm going to take my kid and I'm going to go make sure they're getting the education they deserve. And why should I be paying taxes into a system that I can't even use? Let's put aside, by the way, faith and the ability for you to have a place where your kid can, I mean, put aside prayer or reading the Bible. My wife and I now, we choose to put our kids in a classical Christian school because I basically want them to read the Bible and pray and have that part of their culture. Yeah. But the other aspect of that is that I want them to at least have a place that's not hostile to their faith. Exactly. And so uh, that's a piece of it. The woke stuff's a piece of it. Academic performance is a piece of it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's they're my kids. And what drives me crazy is listening to the legislature go, well, we'll just take a little step into here and we'll just do this little piece of it. Okay, so you're going to give school choice to a handful of kids at the expense of these other kids or parents? And nothing drives me more crazy. It's like, well, we can't have universal choice. Never mind, by the way, Florida just passed it. Yep. Sorry, Texas. It's true. 
You, you know, you like looking at the taillights of Florida? Yeah. Because we used to be Texas where we'd go around saying we're awesome. Oklahoma's about to sign a bill. Correct. So where's Texas, right? We're getting lapped is what's happening. So I hope we're successful. I'm proud of the governor for leaning into the fight. I'm proud of uh, the, a lot of the folks in the Senate doing a lot of the right stuff. And you know, Brandon Creighton is pushing the bill and, and Lieutenant Governor Patrick pushing a bill. Uh, House has been lagging a bit. Uh, we need to see this get finished, but finished fully. I mean, it can't, I don't only half measures. I can't go look at the plumber who's sitting in San Marcos, whose daughter goes to a Catholic school, and this, this plumber, he or she is you know, carving out $10,000 a year out of their $80,000 a year income, and you go, oh, don't worry, you know, uh, you know, I'm sorry, you can't actually use it because you are in Catholic school now. Mm-hmm. That's just wrong. So, so this, the, the parent who had their kid in Hayes ISD, that they suddenly, they, they can wake up next year and they can go take advantage of a, you know, whatever, ESA voucher, whatever it's going to be. And yet the person who's been doing it can't. That's just wrong. I'm sorry, it's wrong. You want to you income cap it? I disagree with that. I'd make it universal for everybody. You can means test it. I, get, I can at least get that. But you got to treat similarly situated people the same. It's just not right if you don't. I hope Texas will lean into it. I hope we'll go full bore and recognize that this is a civil rights issue for parents. Parents are being excluded. What's going on in Plainview right now? Oh, goodness. This is the freaking panhandle. Yeah. (laughs) And we've got a kid that was like, there was some, I don't even want to talk about it, a six-year-old that was what was going on. Yeah. And then the the teachers tried to like This is supposed to be like an area that's like the heart and soul of Texas. It's like an hour north of Lubbock. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was, I was talking to one of my family members who's out there now, and she was like, yeah, it's crazy. She goes, and then last night, the school board allegedly was, like, shutting down yeah, uh, parents literally. who were going in trying to talk about it, like, knocking them off after a minute and having cops take them out of the room. Yep. This is Texas. What the hell is going on? And uh, the legislature needs to act, and, and, and I hope they will this, this session. Yeah, and, and the good More thing special. is, yeah, I think we'll probably end yeah. up in a special, but the governor's really clear. You know, when the House came back with a, a bill that just wasn't far enough and was right. very very, very small and targeted. Yep. He said, no, that's right. not going to work. Well, and good for him. And that's the right call. And we shouldn't allow, again, everybody to hide behind this rural nonsense. I represent really small, you know, town uh, schools like uh, Lakey, right? I mean, in in uh, Real County, the whole school, K through 12 is I don't know, 300 or so people. And um, it's funny, I went there to do a pep rally once and it was like, half the school is on the football team or in the band or whatever. So it's like there was a bunch of elementary school kids for the pep rally. I'm like, what are you pepping them with? You know, like Mr. Rogers or something? It's like, but um, look, the, 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 uh, the point is though, they got a great school. There's a, there's a private school out there. Um, mm-hmm. That's a, it's a great, well, there's a great charter school actually. And, um, and you know, there are some private schools, but they're small. And so, but if a parent wants to go avail themselves, it's not like the whole school is going to get up and go over to this private school. It's like, so a kid or two or a parent decides they want to do that. Why should they not get the benefit of being able to say, look, I'm paying tax dollars for something I'm not going to use. Yeah. At least let me get that back or be able to get my state dollars to be able to go put my kid where I want him to go. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're not having your kid in the school system, you're back to paying the taxes, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think it's really important to like kind of change the way the leverage and the system because right now the schools, the administrators, they're 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 not um, they they owe nothing to the parents in a, in a grand scheme because regardless of what whether you're serving someone's child or not, they they're not going to lose any money if you decide you want to pull your kid or they're not going to have any ramifications for that. And so there's no incentive for them to make sure that they are reaching and realizing the potential of every kid. We're just, I mean, you talk about the, the old, uh, you know, Bush, Kennedy, and No Child Left Behind, you know, a scheme of federal taxation, a whole bunch of complicated things. We're leaving kids behind left and right. Yeah. Right? Because we've put all of that, that power in the hands of a few people, and the m- number of bureaucrats has just gone off the charts. In my lifetime, I'm 50 years old, the, the two areas where we've seen an ma- absolute explosion in both costs and, you know, lack of performance are in healthcare and education. And why? Because you're, you've got an explosion of the bureaucrats. Teachers kind of stay on a per-pupil basis, but you've got all this money going to all these bureaucrats, all these positions, all these administrators. Well, why do we need that? Yeah. Right. My grandmother, was like, she went to a schoolhouse. It was the teacher and the kids. Yeah. That was it. And I, my grandmother, I mean, I'd put her up against the academic any rigor of these kids. was probably. Right, and I, you know, I listened to you know I was listening to a guy 
who was a uh, civil rights leader, and he was just talking about the extent to which the black community has been absolutely decimated and destroyed by the so-called Great Society, by all of this, you know, war on poverty, mm -hmm. and in particular, a public education system that is basically saying they want to, uh, you know, in 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 the in the quest in the in the desire to, you know, el help elevate black kids, they've been leaving them completely behind and not doing what is necessary to have an education system that will lift them up and promote them. He was doing it much more eloquently than I am with obviously a lot more force because he was a longtime civil rights leader. And I just think we've got such a powerful message to deliver about what we are uh, able to do for kids if we free this system up. Uh, and it would be good for everybody, including the public education system. Yeah, and, and you know, to kind of put a highlight on that point, you know, uh, we looked in the class of 2019, one third of the class of 2019 is not in the workforce, not in the military, they're not in higher education. So we've- What are they doing? Losing kids. Like, what are they doing? And you want to talk about things that have such negative effects on society. It's just, it's it's awful. No, you want to know, you know, you look at some of these people that are going off and doing this crazy crap and shooting people and doing whatever, and they're on drugs and like, there there is dignity in work. Mm -hmm. There is dignity in success. There is dignity to be held accountable. Yep. You've got to take a kid. My, one of my favorite teachers I ever had, uh, Mr. Pendleton, who's my fifth grade teacher in my public elementary school in uh, Loudoun County, Virginia, which has been at the epicenter, by the way, of all yeah. this like woke crap with Scott Smith and you know all that's been going on there and, and, and just totally destroying what was a very strong public education system in Loudoun County. Uh, Mr. Pendleton, uh, this was 1982. He was a black man who had grown up he was a little older, so he'd grown up in the, you know, uh, worst times yeah, when it comes to it, civil yeah. rights, and um, he he probably more than anybody else, along with it, my ninth grade uh, world history teacher, who is an old uh, Vietnam veteran guy, they, they slapped me upside the head, like literally and metaphorically, you know, to get you in line, right? When you pop off, or when you you know aren't when you're slacking off, or goofing off in class. And, and I remember him looking at me and he goes, look, I've talked to your mama. I'm going to lower the boom on you. You get in line, Roy. And <laughs> I remember seeing that, you know, and, and it had a profound impact on me. Uh, but that's, you got to have accountability. You got to have the ability to do that. And the, I'm telling you, inserting choice would break the back of the, you know, Randy Weingarten bullcrap teachers union nonsense that had us with our kids sitting in the corner with masks with teachers union trying to shut down our schools. And I know Texas was better than some places, but we oh, weren't perfect. great. Nope. We weren't great. And and that's uh that falls on a whole lot of different areas. And we can talk about COVID later, but but that's um that's I think something we need to break the back of. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And you, you kind of touched on a little bit of like that that experience you had you you don't have in schools anymore right. and and you know uh, we do not have a certain set of standards or expectations that we have of our kids oftentimes i was in houston and i uh, was meeting with a uh, mattress mac down there yeah. and he was telling me a story about he was going to speak at a public school and and the they they told him like oh the kids that uh behaved and hit certain standards uh this week or no, in the last last two weeks, got to come to hear you speak. And he right. goes, oh, what were the expectations? And they said, oh, they couldn't have more than three uh, unexcused absences in the last two weeks. He goes, you mean of 10 days, they could miss three of them and still be here? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, well, what's the point what of this? That? It's crazy. Yeah. Right, I mean, that's this is the thing nobody wants to talk about, right? You don't want to talk, and, and look, with all due respect to, you know, t Texas public education, I mean, are we meeting and, are, and attaining the standards that we're supposed to? Last reports I looked at, no. Yeah. Right? And, you know, I, I know we produce a lot of good kids and we've got a lot of really talented teachers, but we have a system that is nationwide, including Texas, uh, not serving our kids where they need to, to make them be at the level we need to, to beat China, to compete, yeah. to be the greatest country in the world. We're getting lapped. It just, and we've got to step on the gas and make sure that our kids are prepared. Uh, and there's a lot of kids who, by the way, don't need to go to a four-year liberal arts school. Yep. That's not a statement on their abilities. It's just saying most of that is crap. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. You know, you you you, you were in college, even at a place like A and M or Virginia <laughs> when I was there, right? Even it, at A and M, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean well, that recent DEI report wasn't oh, very yeah, good. Yeah, I was yeah, talking yeah. about that. I tell people that. I was yeah. like, yeah, it's not much better there than it is in Texas. It was true though, right? Yeah. And Virginia and and in Virginia, it's just it's like gone off into like you know Ivy League left is crazy. And but my point is. Do you really need to go to one of these schools and take on $300,000 of debt or $100,000 state school, whatever, and come out with a random liberal arts sociology degree to then do what? 
Yep. Right? You'd be better off going and getting a trade and becoming a welder or a plumber, starting your own business. You literally would be financially better off and you, I think, would be mentally better prepared for the world yep. than going and sitting to this nonsense indoctrination. It's not like you're getting steeped in the classical, you know, history of the world or, or you know, becoming an exceptional writer or speaker. Exactly. You know, it's just mostly garbage where you go from one fraternity party to the next or whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I'd also argue the way the current public education system, it's not only serve, not serving students, it's not serving teachers. That's, right. that's, that's a point I think totally often we, we, we miss. They get, they get hamstrung. They're not able to go teach the curriculum. Most teachers, even today, the ones even that have been indoctrinated a bit in our colleges, still at the end of the day, they just want to go teach the stuff. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to go. Because, I mean, are we actually, do you think in a full year, are you able to really get everybody in class to sit there and learn American history up and down, to learn history? If you spend half the year going through a, a critical race theory, America is evil and racist curriculum, you sure as hell aren't learning the basics of history that you at least yeah. need to know as objectively as you can. And we're not doing that. Math's the same way and everything else. So, um, look, I agree. And, and choice is the way that you can have accountability. Because yep. people need to be able to go out in a market and be able to choose. Yeah, you're absolutely right. All right, so speaking of, uh, you, you kind of brought this up a, a few times, but I want to talk a little bit about China. So, yeah. you know, I was in El Paso last week, and we were talking a lot about port security rise. Title 42 was, was going on. But one of the things I, I thought was interesting that kept coming up was the influence of China in Mexico, not only with fentanyl, but yeah. also with infrastructure there and the control that they're starting to exert uh, over the uh, the Mexican government. Um, obviously, there's all kinds of issues related to China, but I'm curious what you're seeing, what are the issues? I, th I think sometimes it's one of the most bipartisan things uh, I see in DC is like the accountability when it comes to China. But I'm curious, you know, how you see that playing out over the next few years. Well, and look, this could be an entire you know podcast yeah. into itself, but I'll just say, you know, good, my friend Mike Gallagher is a great guy, congressman from Wisconsin, is heading up our you know uh, China uh, committee, and um, they're they're doing some good work and, and diving into some stuff and exposing some things. But look, people just don't realize the extent to which China, for all of its faults, and it has many faults and problems, uh, many that aren't spoken about in terms of what they're dealing with culturally, in terms of their you know their old uh, one-child policy that's now having a consequence, their economy yeah. kind of teeters in and out. You know, a demographic they have, problem. They've got a demographic sure. problem, labor problem. You know, there's a lot of issues there. So it's not like there's some monolith. But that being said, there are a lot of Chinese with a really strong, you know, uh, ability to produce, you know, goods and services, and um, their their military is catching up. You know, their their patent system is in some ways sometimes even a little stronger than ours in terms of innovation and getting mm -hmm. things patented. I mean, there's a lot of things that are that are moving in the right direction for China at least from a competitive standpoint. And so we've got to keep that in mind about where we are. And that, that whole thing about American exceptionalism is, is kind of the whole package, right? About what we are, what we stand for in terms of, of our rights and commitment to the rule of law, but also our ability to free up the individuals to produce. So you look at what China's doing, they have a massive insertion into the Western Hemisphere. They are now the number one trading partner for South America. And think about that. Western yeah. Hemisphere, China is now their number one trading partner, not us. Six or seven of the countries in South America have now flipped from supporting Taiwan to flipping China. China's invested like six or seven hundred million dollars into the militaries of South American countries in the last couple of years. Uh, you've got them totally infiltrating Mexico, fully in bed with the cartels, selling them the printing equipment for the pills that the cartels are making yep. to then poison our youth, giving the precursors to make the fentanyl that are killing our youth. They're fully, uh, you know, uh, trying to infiltrate Mexico to basically own the Mexican economy, knowing that it's a narco-terrorist state, and they can, you know, pull that off. Meanwhile, they're engaged in espionage. Meanwhile, they're still stealing intellectual property. Meanwhile, they are, yes, massively expanding their entire, you know, energy production, uh, you know, nuclear, wind, and solar, but predominantly, they're still pumping out fossil fuels to grow their economy. So they've got 1,100 coal-fired plants. They're building two new coal-fired plants a week. Meanwhile, what are we doing, right? Destroying the grid in Texas. Yeah, we're turning them off. Yeah, total you know chasing of climate fetishism. So China is basically a hundred percent you know marching forward. And look, they'll come and go because they've got a thousand year view. So even if they're kind of coming up, and even if they kind of get knocked down, even if they got a population problem, like they're going to keep marching forward because they have a long view. And um, you know we've got to get our house in order, uh, debt military, 
you know, focusing on the right things. Um, but, you know, as the Babylon Bee said the other day, I think the Chinese military is going to start throwing pronouns at our military and our, our, guys, <laughs> our, our military is going to go running away in, in fear, right? It's crazy. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, um, speaking of, you talked about uh, energy a little bit, yeah. and, and you touched on this when we were talking about the debt ceiling earlier. Uh, you know, I think one of the, obviously, everyone still here has uh, PTSD from URI and, and, and things of that nature, but federal subsidies absolutely drive a lot of what is happening on our, our, our grid when it comes to especially renewables. What are the things that you would like to see at the federal level and the state level to, to shore up our grid? Because I don't think anyone in Texas wants Texas to join one of the national grids. Right. Um, but there are concerns about its long-term viability, especially as we continue to grow and we're adding half a million to a million people a right. year in the state. Well, first of all, the only reason we have concerns with the Texas grid is because we're allowing the Texas grid to become weak. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the Texas grid used to be fine. It used to be one of our great assets in yeah. terms of being an independent, uh, you know, state and um, ability to service our, our constituents, our people. Um, look, I, I want to look squarely, you know, at anybody who's questioning my desire and my fidelity to, you know, take on the federal establishment. I 100% believe that it's the federal subsidies and the federal meddling that is predominantly driving Texas's problem. Okay, 100% agree with that. But I've had some Texas legislators saying, oh, well, stay in your lane when I criticize the legislature for not doing enough to push back on that. And they'll say, well, why don't you go solve the problem? Well, look, man, I'm 1,435th of one half of one third of the government. We don't have a Republican in the White House and we don't have a Republican Senate. And guess what? You know, getting Republicans to hold the line as a block is a big win. And we just did it on the border for the first time ever. And we just did it on the debt ceiling. So we're working and we're doing it and we're moving the needle and we're trying to hold the line. But I can promise you, with a Republican governor, Republican House, or Republican Senate, Texas is in a much better place to send a fire a shot across the bow of the federal government that we're not going to let you undermine our grid. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're doing. And just so everybody knows, already under pre-Inflation Reduction Act law, which the Democrats passed last August, we had massive subsidies that were basically corporate cronyism with massive amounts of money going to people to make money on something that is otherwise not profitable building wind farms and solar farms uh, without at all the ability to carry the day on our grid, right? We all know this. It's just math. You just look at the, the, the charts. And you got to have gas, you got to have nuclear, you got to have coal, or you're not going to have a grid that can stay up. Mm -hmm. That's just the bottom line. For the first time in Texas history this year, we're going to have more demand this summer than we have reliable uh, capacity and the ability to produce that power, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what does that mean? It means you better not have a windless, cloudy day on that day or those days. Because if we have a three-month, 100-degree stretch this summer, and we're just gets drawn on that grid and drawn on that grid, and you have a bunch of windless, cloudy days, we're going to have real problems. Because we've not allowed the continued generation of gas and, and, and coal and nuclear. And a huge federal problem, right? The federal subsidies are buying off people that would otherwise invest in a market-driven approach. They'd invest in more gas-fired. But they go over here and they go, oh, but I, I can go get these subsidies. Yep. And by the way, that makes that all cheaper to produce. So I'm going to do that. And so meanwhile, we don't have any new gas-fired plants being built. Of 790-something projects, according to the uh, PUC or ERCOT, I can't remember who I was talking to last fall, uh, 15 of them were not wind or solar. Yep. It's just crazy. And so that's the state of the grid. To my Texas legislature friends, look, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I get it. We're the problem. Washington's the problem. But for those of us throwing our body in front of that train, we need Texas to help by basically saying that in Texas, I don't care what the courts will do. We sue all the time. Ken Paxton can't go a day, I mean, this is a positive, without suing the federal government. Yeah. So don't run away from that. And we're right there next to him, we'll right. help. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> TPBF's right and they're doing it too. So go set the table. Let's go actually say, we're gonna make it be dollar for dollar offset. You're getting a federal offset, you're going to have to make sure that there's gas-fired or coal-fired plant available to cover whatever you're producing. And guess what? They wait. Whoa, wait a minute. Now it's not as economically beneficial for me to go over there. You got to firm up the grid, and you don't firm up the grid by having taxpayers build uh, the the fossil fuel or the you know the reliable energy. Yeah. You got to create it so that the market's more equalized. And the last point I'll make is the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called passed last August through reconciliation, which meant it was jammed through on a majority basis in a dead split House and Senate. They were able to get it done over August. They called us back, 158 proxy votes. They barely got it through. Manchin cut his deal. 
And in that Inflation Reduction Act is a massive expansion of all of those subsidies that go to corporations. 90% of them go to corporations over a billion dollars. These are rich, white, elitist liberals getting rich, moving around their money to go produce these unreliable energy. Uh, and by the way, 80% of the electric vehicle subsidies go to people making well over $100,000. It is a transfer of wealth to the wealthy so that rich people can go sit around in their coffee shops and pat themselves on the back because they reduce CO2 by like 0.2% while China is kicking our butt and producing coal fire plants and building power. It's absolutely crazy. Um, we can solve the problem. We're just refusing to solve the problem. If you ask me what the number one issue is for Texas, that's it. Because yeah. this state, we're in trouble and people don't know it. I go to, and not, not to just go look at Florida, I'm just going to say they have like 92% of their grid is still fossil fuels or nuclear. Which grid would you rather have? Yeah. Well, and the point, and also on, on the renewable stuff, it, you're talking about China and the way they do theirs, but they're also benefiting on mm. uh, our... our uh, totally. On the electric vehicles, the 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 wind turbines, because they manufacture a lot of yeah, them. Yeah, and the solar panels and yeah. all of this. We are enriching the Chinese, empowering the Chinese, making ourselves weaker, making our national security weaker, making our economy weaker, making our grid weaker, and we're doing nothing for actual CO2 production. Because if you did, you'd just go produce lots of nuclear. If your thing is CO2, well, then you want nuclear to be your reliable power. I don't mind there being windmills and solar, but you're subsidizing something that then can't carry the day. Yeah. And that's crazy. Once you've distorted the market, now the market's not actually working. And we ought to, we ought to produce more nuclear power. But that's a that's another conversation for today. But Life Power does a great job of that. Yeah. Uh, our friend Alex Epstein, who obviously yeah. works with Life Power, uh, well, look, works with Life Power. Um, you know, we're we're making headway. People are starting to understand these truths, but we got a long way to go because of that public education system I talked about that's been indoctrinating kids for three decades that they're going to die because carbon dioxide's produced, even though carbon dioxide's entirely natural, yep. even though we produce carbon dioxide, yep. uh, even though the- We're producing the, 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 a lot of it right now. Right. And the, <laughs> the planet gets greener, uh, you know, it thrives. Uh, and all of this ebbs and flows over history for a variety of reasons of which man's, uh, you know, um, impact is but one part of the puzzle. Yeah. Well, it's all very Malthusian, right? The, the way the left goes about this is, is ultimately what they're wanting to do is reduce the population. They're anti-human right. totally. flourishing. Yeah. 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 And we're, we're pro-human flourishing. Uh, God gave us a planet to use and go do it and do it well. Um, and look, and you know, the, the climate issues, we're 100% better off now to manage and deal with the climate than we were a century ago or two mm -hmm. centuries ago. Go look at life expectancy. Go look at what's happening. Um, our biggest obstacle to human flourishing is government regulation and minimizing the ability for us to afford things, which we're doing through extreme regulation in the name of climate fetishism, yep. and we're doing through the takeover of healthcare. Those two things in particular are destroying our ability to compete. Yep, I think you're absolutely right. All right, so uh, the last last question for you um, before we wrap up, because I know you got a lot of other important things to do. We are heading into, well, we've already started kind of the presidential races, and you talked earlier about you, your early support uh -huh. for Governor DeSantis. Obviously, you talked about your, your past support for, for President President Trump. Um, I, I would be curious to hear a little bit of prognost prognostication from you of what you think will transpire over the next uh, 18 months as we head into uh, uh, next presidential election, but more on a broader scale of what do you think uh, is happening in the country, right? Like we saw Florida go from a very thinly red purple, state yeah. to, yeah, I'd call it a very purple yeah. state, to a hardcore red state. Yeah. We saw Texas pretty much stay on course, but I think if you look at what's happening in urban versus rural areas in Texas, there, yeah. there could be some concerns there. But you know, I'm curious what you are seeing happening across the country and what you think ultimately will happen maybe in the next election cycle. So like, it is my considered judgment as I started this conversation talking about is that the American people are hungry. They are hungry to be able to achieve the American dream. They're tired of watching uh, that fade away. Um, even younger generation folks who don't even fully know it, they still see it and they, 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 they get it. And that they, they need leadership that's gonna carry us forward and, and frankly, they're just tired of us failing. Um, and I think right now, um, what you saw in Florida is in fact, to use his own word, a blueprint for what we can do in this country. Um, Governor DeSantis won by a million and a half votes, okay, in the last election cycle. 
Remember that that was an election cycle where Republicans underperformed nationally, where there were serious problems, even in states right nearby to Florida, Georgia, right, where we failed to win Senate races, uh, where we did not pick up seats in places where we would prefer to pick them up. Um, Texas sort of, I think you'd call it status quo, right? Kind of like treading water in terms of, you know, relative performance. Um, But Florida, million and a half votes, right? That's a big transformation. 62% of the Hispanic vote in Florida voted for Governor DeSantis. 50% of single women voted for Governor DeSantis. Um, Why is that? Because even if you disagree, this is my point earlier, people disagree with me. Um, If you do it with conviction and with leadership and they agree with you on most things, they're going to forgive you or ignore the couple of three or four things they disagree with you on. They just want to see leadership. They don't want to see politicians just doing the political thing. And our country desperately needs that again. And I I was watching earlier this morning, Governor Sanders was in New Hampshire, and he was laying that out and getting significant applause. Um, And, you know, taking on DEI, taking on Disney, taking on critical race theory, taking on the education establishment, you know, challenging the idea that you can just put any kind of a book with any kind of ridiculous graphic images in there that are undermining the well-being of our kids without parental consent. People go around and they scream book burning. It's Mm -hmm. completely couldn't be further from the truth. But we need to be aggressive about that throughout the country, about empowering parents, restoring uh, common sense, uh, turning things, you know, um, you know, back into the back on track. Right. Like so that so that people can feel like if they do follow the rules, if they play by the rules, if they do the right thing, if they work hard, if their kids work hard, they'll be rewarded for that. And, And and I think the last part of that puzzle is, you know, in the wake of covid. You know, I think what we saw in particular in Florida was challenging that that order, right? Where everybody comes in and, and with all due respect to the former president, empowering Fauci and having a massive pushback, encouraging states to say shut down and lock down. There was a lot of that going on. If you yeah. go back and look at the record and, and to his credit, I mean, Governor Sanders at first was shutting down because everybody that was where the scientists were. And he, then he, he was data driven and he said, well, wait. This isn't right. This isn't, this isn't we got yeah. to open up. Yeah. And so they did. And people flocked to Florida. I'm telling you, people are hungry for freedom. They, they are, right? They want us to fight for freedom. They want us to give them the ability to go succeed and prosper. Um, as we talked about earlier, the, the dignity of work. People want to work. They want that success. They want to feel it. We've just got to create that environment that encourages them to do it and where you can get the benefit of, of, of um, you know, your the fruits of your labor. And and I think if you ask me to, to sort of predict, you know, I think it all depends on what we do. It all depends on who we pick. Um, this country is desperate for leadership. We got to pick the right leadership. Um, you know, I, I'm proud of what this Congress is currently doing with a razor thin majority. I don't know if we can sustain it all the way through. I hope so. Mm-hmm. So far, we've stayed united. I've tried to be a part of that. Um, sometimes you got to figure out when to take the off ramp, when to yeah. land the plane. You can't always get everything you're going to want to get out of every deal, but you can darn well stand up and plant a flag and encourage people to go there. And that's what Republicans for too long have failed to do. And I will give a lot of credit. Let me just say to President Trump, history is going to judge 2016, 2017 and the challenge of the swamp as a transformational trajectory shift in what had been a long time kind of largesse of Republicans Mm -hmm. who refused to challenge the status quo. President Trump did that. History will judge him well for that. Um, I believe, as I as I said before, I've, I've you know got a different horse for this this cycle um, because I want somebody who can serve for eight years and somebody that I think can build that coalition and that mandate. Mm-hmm. I think President Trump has taken so many arrows over the last five years that it's really hard for him to do that. So I'm I'm fully behind Governor DeSantis, but I think the main point here is. It is time now for every American to stand up and lead and to stop just accepting what they, their eyes are, are telling them. Right? You look out and go, well, why are we doing this? This is weird. Well, I don't. Well, stop it. Like, yeah. stand up and fix it. Like, fix your school. Don't let your kids come home from college just spewing out all sorts of garbage. Say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? Yep. Right? So I think we have an obligation and we need to do that and restore civil society and freedom and opportunity for, for the American people. Awesome. Chip. Thank you, my Thanks, friend. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Y'all keep doing the great work. TBF yeah, thank is, you. Is, is the best. Yeah, well, we appreciate it. Uh, you were an important part of that for, for several years. For now, you're doing your own thing. Thank you to joining us here in the arena with my good friend, uh, Congressman Chip Roy. You know, when you think about the tenets of Teddy Roosevelt's speech, I think there's probably no one that exemplifies that more than Chip. So, Chip, thank you again for joining us, and we'll see y'all on the next episode. <laughs>